What would you do if you got scammed? Would you suffer in silence or would you do something about it? Well, I got scammed once and this is the story of what I did. I'm Justin Sales, the host of The Wedding Scammer, a true crime podcast from The Ringer. And for seven episodes, we're hunting a con man, a guy with a lot of aliases, a guy who's ruined a lot of weddings. And with the help of some friends, I just might be able to catch him. Listen to The Wedding Scammer on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Canva. Better presentations are possible. You just need Canva presentations. With it, you can easily and quickly make stunning slides. All you have to do is start with one of Canva's professionally designed templates or generate slides with AI. Then add graphs, charts, and more from the massive media library, and you're done. It's that simple. I always think that the best use of AI in work is it does the thing that you naturally aren't very good at. And personally, one thing I'm really terrible at is making visual presentations. I'm not very visually inclined. I'm not good at picking out you know, photographs or abstract conceptual images to go with ideas I'm trying to put forward in presentations. So it's kind of nice to have an AI-powered tool that can help me make these presentations in literally seconds. Nail your next work presentation with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibly listed at indeed.com slash plain. Just go to indeed.com slash plain right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Today, we have a very important interview on this show, and I want to give some context for this interview by reviewing the full picture of our Israel-Palestine coverage to date. In the last few weeks, our coverage of this conflict has tried very hard to see the problem from as many angles as possible. In our first interview, we considered the political motivations of Hamas's October 7 attack. In our second episode, we considered the behavior of Israel's government from a very critical perspective. In the third episode, we scrutinized Israel's military objectives by talking to a counterterrorism expert. And last week, we told the 150-year history of Israel, Palestine, and the origins of Hamas by speaking to two historians, one who was clearly more sympathetic to Israel and another who was clearly more sympathetic to Palestine. The diversity here, the diversity of approaches, with some episodes that might have sounded more like a defense of Israel while other shows might have sounded more like a sharp critique of Israel, is not an accident. It is a reflection of, an expression of, my own anguish on this issue. It would be easier for me to simply think that Israel is a genocidal colonial settler state and just be done with it. But I don't believe that frame is true. It would also be easy to say, on the other hand, that every democracy facing an invasion by a militant neighbor that burns its babies in ovens would, of course, wage absolute war to destroy the arsenal of its enemies. But I do not believe that retaliation without limit is useful. There are many voices out there that find the history of this region to be uncomplicated. 
There are other shows that find the path forward simple. And if what you want is an uncomplicated story followed by a simple solution to Israel-Palestine, this podcast is not for you. And this show in particular is not for you. Now, there is a voice we haven't heard from yet in our series. We haven't yet heard from a Palestinian voice. And that's why today's interview is with Sally Opet, a Palestinian Israeli who is part of an activist group standing together. To give you a sense of what this group stands for, let me read a selection of how they describe the urgency of their cause. Quote, The current socio-political reality in Israel is unbearable. Unending occupation feeds violence, fear, and hatred between Israelis and Palestinians. Rather than seriously address these problems, our political leaders use fear and racism to divide us. Instead of providing genuine security solutions, they deliver never-ending wars. End quote. When I read this, what strikes me is an idea so simple and yet so absent in the debates that I follow about this conflict. The governments of Gaza and Israel don't just pose a threat to each other. Their choices, their policies, their very words have made their own citizens less safe. Today, there are open letters signed by some of the world's most famous writers and actors and artists that are calling for, quote, a free Palestine, a, quote, self-determined Gaza state. And yet somehow, most of these open letters make no mention of the fact that Palestinians in Gaza are not free under Hamas. They cannot self-determine under Hamas. There have been no elections in 17 years in Gaza. Hamas is an autocratic, illiberal, kleptocratic police state. It is a war regime that steals from its own citizens, that diverts aid away from hospitals and schools toward the construction of military tunnels that it strategically places directly under those very impoverished hospitals and schools. Yes, clearly Hamas makes Israelis less safe, but it is just as clear to me that Hamas is a clear and present danger to the lives of Gazans as well. Meanwhile, there are pro-Israeli advocates with followers in the tens of millions who defend Israel's right to security, yet make no mention of the fact that Netanyahu's policies directly made Israel less secure. It was Netanyahu who subsidized Hamas to weaken the cause of Palestinian unity. It was Netanyahu who avoided corruption charges by surrounding himself with far-right ministers, ministers whose policies today are terrorizing Palestinians in the West Bank and decimating Israel's international reputation. It was Netanyahu and his government that shifted IDF forces from the south to the settlements, thus leaving the kibbutzim near Gaza vulnerable to the worst terrorist attack in that nation's history. Israeli defenders in the American media are sometimes so eager to dramatize the obvious danger of Hamas that they've lost sight of the deeper and almost more tragic fact that a far-right pro-settler Israeli coalition under Netanyahu makes their own citizens less safe. And the lurid, lurid cruelty of this far-right coalition is destroying the reputation of the world's one Jewish state. It is impossible to imagine peace in this region without a multi-state solution. And it is equally impossible to imagine a multi-state solution with either Hamas or a radical Israeli government at the table. Peace requires regime change in Palestine, 
but just as urgently, it requires regime change in Israel. Without both, what you will get is death and death and death and death, all marching under the banner of one-sided justice. As David Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker, wrote, quote, any world in which Hamas and an increasingly reactionary Israeli leadership dictate the policy and the temper of the region is doomed to more injustice, confrontation, and death. I am not naive. I know that what I'm asking for is not likely to happen soon. Certainly not this year, perhaps not next year, maybe not the next decade or two. I know it takes time for new political movements to grow. But I am interested in finding the seeds of any movement that has the possibility of creating peace. I want to hear more from the Israelis and the Palestinians who see as I do that the old men who got us into this will not be the leaders to get us out of it. I'm Derek Thompson. This is Plain English. Sally Abed, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, Derek. Thank you for having me. Before we talk about the difficulty of achieving peace and social justice in this part of the world, can you tell me on a personal level what it's like being a Palestinian Israeli at this moment? At any moment, I would describe it as a psychosis. Uh, but right now, <laughs> right now, it's just, uh, it's almost an impossibility. It's almost an impossibility. It feels like uh, there is this requirement uh, for us to erase ourselves completely as Palestinians. It just seems like there is no space for us to exist as Palestinians right now in Israel. Anything that we are saying, anything that we are expressing uh, is just not enough <laughs> or not good or bad or inciting or hateful or terror supporting. Uh, we are immediately became the enemies uh, from within. Uh, we are, uh, you know, going through um, a lot of incitement and hostile uh, environment around us through the media and on, on the streets, you know, um, our uh, minister of national uh, security and the head of police uh, is is uh, an openly Jewish supremacist <laughs> who is openly calling for you know uh, the annihilation of Gaza and and talking against uh, our society here within Israel. He has been distributing um, tens of thousands of pieces of arms of guns to civil organized groups, especially in mixed cities like Haifa. So there's a very very deep sense of insecurity like physical insecurity. And then we are seeing mass arrests, uh, mass like firing from work, uh, students being expelled from universities. Um, it's it's a near impossible situation uh, to exist right now. 
it seems like to make it even harder, you're not just a Palestinian Israeli. You are a Palestinian Israeli who is an activist, who is a media figure, who speaks out and is a part of this incredibly difficult conversation that people are having is within Israel and around the world. Just one more question on this point. What is the, what's been the hardest thing to communicate in this moment where on the one hand you have this horrific attack of October 7th, and on the other hand, you have this shelling of Gaza, which is clearly destroying many homes and killing many civilians. The exact number is up for debate, but the fact that there is a number is not up for debate. When you have these two sort of truths that are living side by side, what's been the hardest thing to communicate as a media representative? You know, when I said that it's a near impossibility to exist as Palestinian right now, there's like this almost, um, there's zero space for me to express my uh, pain and my collective trauma and my collective tr- grief over my people in Gaza. And it has to do with the f- with two th- main things. One, the fact that the Israeli public, the media, the government, a lot of things for for decades have systematically, you know, disconnected our narrative uh, as Arab Israelis, quote unquote, you know, from the Palestinians. Uh, and if you want to be a good Arab, a partner, a part of the society of the Israeli society, you absolutely cannot be Palestinian, <laughs> right? Um, and in these moments. Uh, of of really uh, the experience, the duality of experience that we hold, uh, you know, also experiencing the the the, the atrocities uh, that we endured as Israeli society. Uh, you know, many of my friends lost dear ones. You know, I've been in funerals. I've been going. It's it's been re- we are devastated, uh, and we we see the loss and the fear and the pain. And at the same time, we see it against us. You know, we are like almost held responsible for it. Um, And then parallel to that, we are just not allowed to express our own experience as Palestinians um, and our own pain. Uh, And I think that's, that's the hardest thing to portray just for people here, especially for Israeli, uh, you know, um, Jewish public, just that duality um, and our right to to grief our people uh, in, in in Gaza. I really want to understand your perspective on how other Palestinians feel in this moment. I don't want to hold you up as someone who can magically speak for millions of people who you are not. But you know, last week, Senator Tom Cotton, a Republican senator in the U.S., tweeted, "Quote: Anyone who claims to support the people of Gaza." but not Hamas, should remember that Gazans elected Hamas, end quote. I've seen this and other attempts to equate Gazans with Hamas. And this seems complicated to me. Hamas won a plurality of the vote in Gaza in uh, 2006. Uh, They are the state of Gaza, but also as someone who lives in a country that has elected presidents that I think were horrific human beings, I don't necessarily think that Americans are the equal of their government. So what is what is your idea of, what is your perspective on how to 
characterize Hamas as a representative of the interests of Gaza? That's a ridiculous claim, uh, especially, you know, for elections that happened uh, 17 years ago, um, where most of the people, if you really look at the population of Gaza right now, that was 17 years ago. So most of the people that are currently live, uh, adults that live today in Gaza actually didn't have didn't elect, you know, their leadership. Uh, that's one. Two, if you really look at polls, and people grossly overlook that, if you look at polls of the Gazan people, when they ask when they ask them about the, 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 how satisfied are they with their leadership, how uh, uh, supportive they are uh, of their leadership. And you would see that over, you know, more than 50% of the people in Gaza actually are in opposition. Uh, and then more are, uh, you know, they don't know, or they, they're not satisfied or they're, you know, so, uh, and I think people really overlook the fact that Palestinians in Gaza just like most normal people in the world just want a leadership that can actually um, promote their interests, right? Uh, another thing, by the way, another uh, very interesting point is that uh, when they made a poll about uh, whether people support uh, Hamas or Fatah, you know, the other uh, party which rules in, in the West Bank, uh, there were more there was more support for Fatah than 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 Hamas. And uh, uh, if you uh, look at uh, Netanyahu uh, uh, and his communication since 2014, he hasn't spoken to Fatah at all uh, and has only exclusively been communicating and negotiating with Hamas. Um, So uh, in many ways, uh, you know, I think saying that uh, Hamas is a legitimate leader of the the Palestinian people in Gaza uh, is not true. like factually, statistically, is not true. We've spoken to a few people on the show about the state of Gaza. How would you characterize the state of Gaza? People need to understand that the situation uh, and and the dire humanitarian crisis that has been uh, deteriorating for years. Um, And in many many ways, you know, what a 17-year-old who has not left Gaza, and if he if he was able to, he wouldn't be able to come back. Um, and he has gone through nine major wars, eighteen attacks total, uh, devastating results. Everyone in Gaza, you know, over fifty percent uh, are uh, you know unemployed. There's no employment. Uh, over 90% of kids have PTSD uh, and and uh, and anxiety and depression. So you're looking at like such a devastated, militarily controlled community of millions that are refugees, by the way. People forget that, the, the, that you know, Palestinians in Gaza are actually refugees from Haifa, from Yaffa, from Akka, from other villages, which in, in what is now Israel, you know, so they're like dislocated as well. Like, and, and just putting that all together, um, it's, uh, it, 
it's very tricky for me to, to explain that context to people because then they're like, oh, you're justifying, you know, their compliance to, to, to Hamas. And I'm like, I'm not, no one should justify, um, nothing can justify Hamas and, and, and their, uh, and especially their, uh, their attack on, on October 7th, nothing can justify that, but we cannot look at the, this kind of population that has endured so much for so many years and like be like oh why are you not you know rioting and like trying to get a new leadership i take it you hold israel uh, partly responsible at least for the conditions in gaza you mentioned the rationing all of these essential resources to what extent do you hold hamas responsible for conditions in gaza as well like what is your appraisal of their leadership Absolutely, 100%. <laughs> you know, Gaza, uh, Hamas has been receiving millions and millions and millions of of of, uh, uh, of dollars, uh, you know, over the years for humanitarian aid, which uh, they have not given to the people. Uh, you know, you cannot not hold a radical Islamist uh, movement for their opinions, you know, and for the for their policies and for their politics and for their ideologies. You know, obviously that's on Hamas. <laughs> uh, absolutely, yes. Um, and and yeah, my 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 view on on Israel's. Uh, responsibilities is clear. Yeah. I think you did. Yeah. You have said before, quote, if you are pro-Palestinian liberation, you necessarily have to be pro-Israeli people and vice versa. If you care about Israel, you have to be pro-Palestinian liberation. Can you tell me what you mean by that? Yeah, let's be very honest. There is not really left left in Israel. Um, and we're trying to rebuild it and, you know, hold on what we have and, and build a new kind of uh, left. Um, I always ask myself, uh, what am I supposed to do? What is my responsibility as an activist, as part of Israeli society? What's my mission? Who am I convincing? Right? And my answer is always, you know, I need to build the political will, the political capital within the Israeli society to end the occupation, right? Like that's what I need to do. And I think that's like so disconnected from the Palestinian liberation movement abroad, which grossly overlooks that critical condition of having the political will within Israeli society, <laughs> right? And I cannot come to, you know, people in Israel, to Jewish Israelis, and tell them to liberate me as a Palestinian. I'm, I'm a partner, I'm part of their society. And I and also understand and acknowledge that the majority of us here in Israel have a shared interest in, in advancing, you know, many of our issues here, you know, of social and economic injustices within the Israeli society against our government. Right. When I talk to people about that, and I think October 7th in many ways have highlighted that need. You know, many of the Palestinian liberation movements have failed to acknowledge the humanity of the Israeli people. And that is not only, you know, morally lacking, 
but it's also like strategically catastrophic for the Palestinian cause if you're unable to to hold the humanity of people you know regardless of how just your 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 cause is then you're 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 just compromising your your cause you said there is no left left in Israel uh, it seems to me that there is a sort of missing moderate middle on both sides of this equation both Israel and within Palestine um and the the radicalism seems to be almost symbiotic. It seems to feed on itself. Like the far-right lurch of Israel seems to feed the radicalism of some Palestinian militants. And the specter of Palestinian militant groups seems to justify and feed the political strength of the far-right Israelis, which is one of the things about this situation I find most tragic, but also most confounding. I would love you to help me understand uh, why you think the forces of radicalism have been so politically and ideologically successful in the last few years. First, within Israel, as a left-wing activist trying to bring the left and moderates onto your cause, clearly you were paying really close attention to the success of far-right Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox groups in Israel. Why do you think these more far-right groups have had so much political success in the last few years? Two things. One is really the the failure of the left to actually um, build a popular politics, a people's politics in Israel. Uh, the left in Israel for many years um, have been, you know, have neglected the people, the social justice issues, progressive issues on the ground, and has been portrayed almost as this outsider observer who's like morally lecturing people about peace and about um, immorality and liberalism and secularism without actually providing real people's politics and real solutions to people's problems. And with right populism and the gradual but rapid deterioration of the left, especially after 94, after the murder of, of Yitzhak Rabin in 94, in 95, sorry, we saw that the left has completely lost touch. And we saw like a very gradual, you know, with, with uh, uh, also expansions of settlements after that, um, which now have become completely normalized within Israeli society, right? Like settlements, illegal settlements are just not even a political issue. It's not even something that people, you know, talk about. And this very deep idea of like, you know, that you are expanding settlements on, on, on stolen land and it's like normalized. It does something to the, to the public. It does something to the Israeli consciousness. And it's like gradual normalization of, of, of this kind of uh, regime and, and policies. Under the policies of Netanyahu, you've seen this dramatic increase in settlements. The number of settlements has increased along the side of military outposts these military outposts and this sort of separation of civilian and military law has led to has led many people to describe the lives of Palestinians in the West Bank as a kind of apartheid. What is the, how has this been reflected in like the political institutions that Palestinians have in the West Bank? Like, what is their relationship with the Netanyahu government? 
Um, well, you know, it is divided. You know, you have area A, B, C, and A is the one that is mostly uh, being uh, settled. By the way, uh, we need to acknowledge the fact that over 100 Palestinians have been killed since October 7th in the West Bank, uh, mostly by uh, the IDF, but also by settlers. You know, there are ma mass political arrests right now as well there, an invasion on Jenin. In many ways, the uh, Palestinian authorities is actually an extremely oppressive authority. You know, if you really look uh, in recent years, uh, there has been some kind of attempts of resistance uh, within the Palestinian people in the West Bank, which have been uh, met with extreme violence uh, and sometimes killings of, of, of uh, assassination of, of uh, activists and, and resistance uh, voices within the West Bank. Um, so when we talk, it's, it's very important for me to place that, uh, you know, I am extremely uh, critical of the Palestinian Authority uh, in the West Bank. Um, obviously, Mahmoud Abbas is not a legitimate uh, uh, leader, leader, you know, Abu Mazen. And of and course- Can you actually just stop there to explain briefly why you say Abbas is not a legitimate leader? He hasn't been elected since- when was the last elections? <laughs> when was the last elections in the West Bank? I don't even remember. <laughs> yeah, in many ways, the PA is like an outsourced, uh, you know, occupation force, an oppressive force, uh, you know, in areas where Israel doesn't have, uh, um, you know, military presence. They have military control over everything, but they don't have military presence. Uh, you know, like in Bethlehem and Ramallah, you know, the, the capital, uh, the PA is doing a great job at maintaining an oppressive regime, <laughs> um, you know, and uh, in many ways they have been good allies uh, in, in a very, sh in a shared uh, uh, mission to suppress the Palestinian people, unfortunately. Uh, and we see, um, you know, Israel has the interest in making sure the PA, as it is today, uh, you know, stays in power. Uh, you know, because it is suppressing any kind of a rise of moderate liberal voices, of any kind of resistance that is beyond, uh, you know, the PA, uh, the Palestinian Authority. Uh, same thing with Hamas, by the way. Um, uh, Netanyahu, and this is a quote, and I was looking for it. I wanted the quote to be very, like, accurate. Um, the quote says what Bibi Netanyahu said. In Hebrew, I'm going to just translate it simultaneously, is whoever wants to uh, put a hindrance on the establishment of, the, of a Palestinian state absolutely needs to support and strengthen Hamas and provide them with money. That's what Bibi Netanyahu said. That's a direct quote from Bibi Netanyahu. Why do you think he said that? Because... Listen, I think uh, um, the existence of Hamas, and in many ways, it's it's such a sad, tragic thing to say right now. Um, you know the, the the atrocities that we witnessed and the Hamas attack here in the in the south of Israel was in many ways beneficial for the extreme right. Now, 
it is proven to be not very beneficial for, for Bibi Netanyahu because he's losing grip <laughs> according to polls. But if you look, you know, the, the, the settler Zionist uh, uh, religious, uh, you know, uh, movements and parties have not lost grip. They're getting stronger because they are, you know, when you have a radical rival, your radicalism is justified. Mm. Mm-hmm. I absolutely agree with that. This is why, you know, I said to you, and I've said before, one of the things I find most tragic about this situation is that radicalism feeds on radicalism, right? You're not suggesting that the far right had some false flag operation or that this is some kind of conspiracy. You're saying it is, it's, it's simply a political fact that a terrorist attack that dramatizes the danger of Palestinians and Palestinian leadership is politically beneficial to those who previously tried to demonize Palestinians and Palestinian leadership. Is that essentially it? Absolutely, absolutely. And for many, many, many years, uh, the Israeli public has been, uh, um, you know, taught that it's either us or them. If we let them loose, if we end the occupation, if we let them free, they're going to kill us. So this is where I would love to represent to you what I think a more conservative Israeli might say. They would say, we face an unbelievably complex dilemma in Gaza. We want to keep Israel safe. We're cognizant of the fact that we were attacked not just by a terrorist cell that lives in Gaza, but by the state itself, by the leaders. We cannot placate Hamas anymore. We have to destroy them. We have to go in there and bomb them out of Gaza and pull up the weeds by the root. Now, it is a fact that Hamas sometimes hides behind civilians, they co-locate with civilian infrastructure. It's impossible to uproot our terrorist neighbor without destroying parts of Gaza. And so this is simply the military action that we have to do as a state that has a democratic obligation to keep our citizens secure. How do you, in this incredibly complex political moment, how do you think about and respond to this argument, which I'm sure you are hearing every hour of every day of your life right now? Yeah, all the time, all the time. And it's honestly shocking the amount of people that have been aligning with that narrative here. Um, first of all, I want to say, um, and it's important for me to say that because I don't want... You know, it's very easy for people to hear a Palestinian and demonize Israelis. Um, you know, in, and I, I can't believe I'm saying that because I'm getting so many, so much heat and like, you know, threats and many, many disgusting things that I'm getting that I don't want to even say right now. And I'm really feeling the hate. Uh, with that being said, um, the Israeli people right now are hurting, you know. Most of them, unfortunately, are absolutely aligned with the idea that we need to, de- to do whatever is necessary to end Hamas. Whatever is necessary. The tragedy is that the Israeli public is probably the only public in the world right now that is not exposed at all to the atrocities being conducted in, 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 in Gaza. At all. At all. What do you mean by that? You mean, you mean that 
they're not being represented in Israeli newspapers, Israeli television, that there's a kind not of media blockade of the there events was, in Gaza. Hamas just published a video of the hostages and they deleted it all from all media immediately, 10 minutes after it was published, all of it, from a government order, a democratic government order. <laughs> it, and it's a very, very... A, a peculiar situation to be in that in order to justify the humanity of my people and, you know, against the collective punishment of millions of people, uh, I need to somehow provide expert opinion, an alternative on what to do with terrorism, right? Uh, um, uh, other than, you know, the most powerful country in the Middle East supported by the most powerful country in the world, just using the most advanced technology, cruel technology from above, just killing people in ways we didn't even know, like, you know, existed. And somehow we cannot ask for ceasefire without bringing an alternative. While completely overlooking the context of the Israeli government and the fact that they have politicians right now who are also openly talking about annihilating Gaza. Yes, Hamas is has an ideology of, of a very, very clear ideology to end Israel, right? Like that's obvious. We understand the need to end that kind of ideology. I think you know, overlooking the fact that Israel has been in many ways advancing and strengthening the position of Hamas in in Gaza and the fact that they have not advanced any kind of real efforts into strengthening a different kind of political current, a different kind of leadership in in the West Bank and in Gaza. They have actually actively prevented uh, the rise of new leadership that can actually uh, uh, lead us to a more sane negotiations and, and actual negotiations. This episode is brought to you by Canva. Here's a writing tip for work. Don't just write. Use Canva Docs. It has Magic Write, a built-in AI text generator powered by OpenAI to help you create almost anything, from meeting agendas to job descriptions, marketing plans, proposals, and more. Canva is here to help you get it done. If you've used AI for work, for writing, for coming up with bullet points for a podcast, a meeting, you know that AI works best when you're specific, when you tell AI exactly what you want and then tell it again and again. Help me do this. Help me talk like this kind of person. The more specific you can be, the more helpful you'll find it is. Generate your draft fast with Canva Docs at canva.com, designed for work. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. 
We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibly listed at indeed.com slash plain. Just go to indeed.com slash plain right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I want to ask you about the movement that you're trying to build. But before I do, Sally, I hope that you understand this question with the sympathy with which I ask it. I don't have an answer to what Israel should do either. But you, as a political actor, don't you feel like you have to offer a clear policy alternative, if for no other reason than to build movement behind it? Like, even if your policy alternative is just a ceasefire, I do think that you have an obligation as, a, as an activist, as a, as, a, as a political leader, to say, we're calling for a ceasefire, but here's what we're calling for after a ceasefire. Because Technically, we kind of had a ceasefire on October 5th and October 6th, and then we had October 7th. And so there's lots of Israelis that, as you know, are going to worry that you're going to get October 7th every month for, until the end of time if you simply go back to the conditions of October 6th. So what, what, do, what do you say, what do you have to offer people that might be willing to join the moderate or left cause, but they want to see that a clear alternative to war exists? Do you think the billions of dollars that you guys are paying with your taxes right now, do you think the American, uh, the U.S. government has uh, a responsibility to give us a plan after the war? After They eradicated Hamas. Hamas is done. We killed hundreds of thousands of, of, of Palestinians. Okay, done. There's total destruction. Second time refugees hundreds of thousands of people, you know, displaced. No, Gaza is inhabitable. No Hamas. Who's taking responsibility? Do you think, do you think the Israeli government and the US government and whoever is supporting this, this uh, mass killings and collective punishment right now has an answer? Sally, I absolutely do not. Exactly. So why am I supposed to expect an answer? So I, I think in many ways it's just absolutely infuriating to me that I am expected as a peace activist who is asking not to kill thousands of children to have an alternative to war, while people who are killing so many people with no intention to actually providing us peace as Israelis as well, you know, not even talking about Palestinians, you're pro-Israeli. How is this providing security to, to Israelis right now? You're delusional if you think this is this is providing uh, security to to Israelis, and you're delusional if you think that Israeli government or the U.S. government, who is unconditionally supporting uh, uh, our crazy lunatic lunatic, uh, lunatic uh, um, leaders, that they have an actual plan of how to what to do after they eradicate uh, Hamas. I don't think they have a plan, so I don't have an answer for you. Uh, and uh, and I'm I'm very upset that I don't. I really am, uh, because we're stuck. We're stuck in this 
in this like unfathomable conversation that like I don't know like really you want me to give you a like really like we saw what happened in Iraq million people died we saw what happened with Taliban they're ruling right now like what's your plan you are retracing all of my concerns that I've put to other people some have compared October 7th to 9-11 and said that of course Israel is going to respond the same way America did to which I always want to say, you have followed the news for the last 22 years. You know how the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq turned out. Nation building is incredibly difficult in a territory where you have, on purpose or accidentally, killed thousands and thousands of people and inflamed the very radicalism that you're trying to uproot. I was just I just had a counterterrorism expert on last week where, you know, I put it to him where he said, you know, I think that what's going to happen is. Israel's going to go through. They're going to go door to door with the IDF. They're going to uproot Hamas. They're going to go into the tunnels. They're going to kill enough of the leaders. They're going to take over the territory and they're going to hand it over to Al Fatah or some alliance of Arab states that will create some kind of temporary government. To which I said, all of the political, and tell me if this, if, if this is wrong, it, it seems like all of the political entrepreneurship in Gaza, like the new political organizations that are being created, are often militant themselves. So aren't we just going to have another civil war in Gaza just underneath this new leadership, whether it's al-Fatah or the, this alliance of Arab leaders? It doesn't seem to me like there is much of a plan, much of a, clear, a clearly cited plan for what happens after the war. What you have instead is the clarity of blind, hot rage. It's critical to build the political will within the Israeli society. Okay. And to do that, we need new leaderships. We need new leaderships and, and just this whole condoning and normalizing the current government uh, by, by the world leaders is just catastrophic to us as Israelis. It's catastrophic that they're unconditionally supporting the Israeli government. Support the Israeli people, you know, send your solidarity to the Israeli people, to the Palestinians and Jews who live in Israel, and obviously to the Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza. Stop condoning and normalizing our government and start supporting us, the ones on the ground who are being persecuted, being arrested, being attacked and harassed to build a new kind of vision. You know, we actually exist here, you know, Palestinians and Jews who actually live together <laughs> and we, we exist and we want to build a new kind of way. Can you tell me a little bit about the coalitional strategy that you're pursuing? How do you build enough momentum between these different parts of the Israeli center and center left to edge out the rising power of the far right that is, to my eye, pro-settlement, pro-militarism, and simply has no possibility to me of moving us closer toward a two-state solution. Um, I mentioned uh, uh, before, you know, the disconnect almost between our mission as an Israeli left, you know, a Jewish Palestinian Israeli left, and the bigger, you know, conversation in the world about Israel-Palestine, you know, because um, our mission is how do we bring as many people as possible, as close as possible to our worldview to, to our vision to our political current right and 
you know, people start asking us, oh, so two state or one state? What about the right of return? Do you, why don't you use the word apartheid? Uh, why don't you, are you anti-Zionist? Uh, and, and stuff like that. And I think people need to understand that, you know, when you work with the Israeli public, you're actually working with people. Our work is just so day-to-day life of like literally, like most of my work here is actually not like peace, anti-occupation work. Um, it's it's like minimum wage and affordable housing and like transportation and like real life issues while never, ever, ever dismissing my card as a Palestinian. That's my that's my theory of change. Okay. I want to claim my part and my responsibility within the Israeli public as part of it as a Palestinian. And I think creating that new paradigm, that shift in paradigm, and it's so weird to talk about this now because it just feels just so challenged to all of this. Uh, you know, our, our theory of change and our mission just so challenged right now. Um, but we are hopeful that it will, you know, we will rehabilitate. But we need to shift the paradigm of what, who's us? Who's the political protagonist? You know, who is us? It's not, you know, us, the Jewish people or us, the Palestinian people. It's it's the people who live here, who have a deep interest, you know, in living securely and freely and, and equally. This all seems like incredibly hard work, but it also sounds to me like in the end, you are the opposite of delusional. You are betting on reality. You're betting on the reality that Jews and Muslims and Christians and secular Israelis, and Jewish Israelis, and Palestinian Israelis, you all do live together. You all have the shared interest of sharing a land. And if you can orient the Israeli public around your collective need for higher wages, better housing, solidarity, you have a chance to use that political movement for plenty to become a political movement for peace. I'm not I'm not naive. I don't think it's going to be easy. Um I also don't think the hundreds of, you know, ultra orthodox or people who voted for the Likud who I honestly like busted my ass off to to like organize uh, around minimum wage are going to come and like, you know, go to Sheikh Jarrah with me for Palestinian liberation, okay? They're not. I, I'm not delusional. For the political will that I'm talking about, you need to like gradually and continuously and relentlessly, you know, move people on the spectrum. And you can you only can do that through real life issues. And so, so for example, even now, you know, the conversation that you and I are having is not the conversation that I'm gonna be having with Israelis right now. You know, that the conversation that I'm having with Israelis right now is, oh, let's go and have solidarity watches and talk about, you know, how we can clean our streets or clean our bomb shelters right now in Haifa because we might actually be bombed by Hezbollah. Who knows? <laughs> you know, and we're in this together. And it's like such and and this intertwined complex shared reality is just so much more it's it exists and it's so different than the any conversation that I might be able to express outside. Uh, it's very complex, but it's it's possible because we actually live together. <laughs>
Sally Abed, thank you very, very much. Thank you so much for listening. Plain English is hosted by me, Derek Thompson, and produced by Devin Manzi. Some great news for you all. As you probably know, we are returning, have returned back to our normal schedule of two pods a week. So be on the lookout for new episodes every Tuesday and Friday. If you like our podcast, please rate, give us five stars, subscribe wherever you listen, and I'll see you later.